We're given details in Psalm 105 about Joseph's experience that we are not told in the book of Genesis. Kind of interesting. So we'll be pairing that over this morning in Psalm 105 and Genesis 41. Really, last time we were together, uh, two weeks ago it was, we left Joseph in the position of power. You'll remember he has been sold into slavery. His brothers hated him. He's gone to Potiphar's house. He's endured temptation. He's been falsely accused. He now has gone to prison for that false accusation of being an adulterer. And he's, he's persevered through a long time in prison, enduring. He interprets the dreams, finally, of two of the prisoners, the, the uh, baker and the cupbearer. And the dreams are, they come true. And he, re- he says to the cupbearer before he goes back to the palace, remember me before Pharaoh because I don't belong here in prison. And the cupbearer promptly forgot him. For two years he forgot him and did not remember that Joseph had been the one to interpret the dream accurately and that he really didn't deserve to be in prison. Two years later, though, Pharaoh has a dream. Pharaoh's dream really troubles him. He's concerned about the things he sees, these, these fat cows and skinny cows and the things that all indicated famine, but he didn't know what was going on, so he, he called out to those who were in the land who were sometimes possibly even paid interpreters, who, this was their job, this is what they should have been doing, and everybody said, interestingly, they were fairly honest, we have no idea. We, we can't begin to tell you what is really going on, and so all of a sudden, the light goes on, the cupbearer says, oh yeah, I remember my faults today. It was a pretty brave thing to do because you remember that the faults that he was remembering could have definitely meant that he would be dead. And so he he braves it and steps out and says, I remember my faults. There was this guy in prison. He interpreted this dream that I had and it came true. And sure enough, here I am back serving you. And well, um, the baker kind of went the other way. So uh, he, he Pharaoh says, well, call him. And Joseph shaves and and uh, takes off his prison garments, and possibly they even had to saw off the iron collar that was on his neck and remove the fetters from his feet. We aren't sure exactly what position he was in in prison at this point in time, but Psalm 105 asserts that those were things that he experienced. And so all of a sudden, he's before Pharaoh. Pharaoh tells the dream, and he says, I understand that you, Joseph, have the authority, the power to interpret dreams when they're told to you. And You might remember Joseph's very important response. Do you remember it? He said, it is not in me, right? And he points right back to God and says, God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Interestingly enough, you got to remember, and this is super important for the story as we play it out this morning and in the weeks to come, the person before whom Joseph now appeared thought he was God, right? I mean... He, he, was, he was deified by the people and what he really thought in his heart of hearts. I mean, surely he knew he was mortal and the human and his, all his forebears had died and he too would die. But somehow they had gotten to the position where he was considered God. So Joseph's assertion that God has authority is an assertion that you are not God, but there is a God. And he can answer what you, the little g God, cannot begin. So that's where we left Joseph. And as we came to the end of chapter 41, we really didn't have time, and I think providentially, 
um, were able to just skip a portion that I want to go back and review this morning because it plays very heavily into, uh, into this very idea of Thanksgiving. It's kind of a strange juxtaposition, really, Egypt and Thanksgiving. We think of pyramids and camels and how does that go with Thanksgiving dinner? But I want to show you this morning that actually they do blend. There is actually a combination here going on where we're taking, we're taking Joseph's experience from prison and gratitude. Prison as an expat far from family. I want to show you that really one of the most practical ways we can connect with God, one very simple way that we can boast in him is found in this chapter, and it's all wrapped up in giving thanks. So let's pray and ask that God's Spirit would show us what he has for us this morning. Heavenly Father, as we gather this morning, all the best words that I can say, and even just the direct reading of your word, can really literally fall on our ears and do nothing to change us, not give us any real, internal, essential change. But what we're talking about can change us if your spirit takes control this morning. So laying aside all the things that we've talked about and all the history we've just discussed, we're asking that your spirit would be in charge of the things that we're about to share together from your word. It is your word, and we believe that you care about it more than we do, and so we're asking superintend, guide, and direct us in your word this morning for Jesus' sake. Amen. If you look at Genesis chapter 41, toward the end of the chapter, we find that there is an amazing thing that takes place in Joseph's life. He's given a wife by Pharaoh and then by God He's given two boys. Some of you parents probably remember holding your first child. Do you remember holding your first child? There's nothing quite like it. This is my daughter, Anna, our first child. Aside from figuring out what in the world do we do with this little critter, how do we stop it from crying? I mean, you're young, right? So it's like, uh, I mean, we've been, I suppose, preparing all our lives for this moment when we hold this baby, and now what do we do with it? And then we can't just call somebody else because we're it. We're her parents. And, and so aside from that overwhelming reality that we have this great responsibility, there's really an amazing and overwhelming sense of wonder in this tiny person that you hold in your arms. For those of you who don't have children, hold somebody else's child and check it out. But wait till you have your own because there's nothing like holding your own flesh and blood and looking deep into their eyes and wondering, who is this little person that's so much like me and yet not? It's a very amazing thing. There's, it's kind of like looking at a rosebud that's tightly furled and waiting somehow to watch it open and discover within that person the treasures of who God made them to be. Ecclesiastes 11.5, we hear Solomon wrestling with this idea, and he says, As you do not know the way that the spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. It's a mystery. 
how God does this and what he does in making a person. Psalm 139, you're familiar with, and David is forming ideas along these lines as well. He says, you form my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. There's an amazing sense of wonder as we look at a tiny child, especially our own. But there's also a sense of joy. Uh, there was, there's pain in the process of birth. Um, all the preparation that I could have ahead of time before the births of my children couldn't prepare me adequately for what I was about to be a part of. And probably, I mean, you women can tell me that I really still don't know anything about it, but, but I've watched it happen six times. And it's pretty overwhelming. I mean, frankly, it's completely overwhelming. Here's a process that's taking place in my wife's body and in my baby, and I have no control. There's nothing I can do. Oh, we can do the best we can with medical technology, and we can try to help out, and I can say encouraging words, and that's about it. But after the child is born, and you hold that little baby in your arms, my wife tells me that even then, the pain is almost right away like a memory. And, and that's what Jesus says in, Psalm 6, in John 16. He is talking about his upcoming trials, his, his um, crucifixion, really. In John 16, he says, You will be sorrowful to his disciples, but when your sorrow will turn, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come, but when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has born, been born into the world. There's a tremendous joy. Think of a joy that's so overwhelming that when you hold that tiny child, what just happened, the difficulties, the pain, and the trauma of that experience is almost foggy right away. That's the joy of a little child that you hold in your arms for the very first time. But there's also thanks. You're grateful for life. You're grateful for safety. You're grateful for health. I grew in my gratitude probably for those things as we went through difficulties and trials in these very matters of birth and pregnancy and miscarriage, and you're really grateful when you hold that tiny baby in your arms. You're aware of the delicate nature of tiny beings who depend entirely on us. You're aware of the slim margins in the process of birth. But Joseph had a thanks that went even deeper than just looking at the baby in his arms. So step back with me to Genesis 41, about 4,000 years ago, to the time when Joseph welcomed his sons into his home. He held those babies in his arms. He felt their warm baby breath on his face. He probably pressed his nose into their soft cheeks. He caressed their little hands. He touched their feet and felt the toes curl. He looked deep into those dark, unfocused eyes of his own little babies. And he saw, well, you can probably guess what he saw. Because Joseph saw when he looked at his babies the same thing that he saw in every other circumstance of life. When he looked at his little boys, he saw God. That's what he saw in slavery. 
That's what he saw in his dreams. That's what he saw in temptation and false accusation and prison. That's what he saw when he was hated and forgotten or when he was loved and lauded. Joseph saw when he looked into those dark eyes of his own little babies that he held in his arms, he saw God at work. He named his first son Manasseh. And Manasseh, he says, meant God has made me forget all my hardship and my father's house. And I want to ask you, do you think that Joseph actually forgot his father's house? That he really couldn't remember who his dad was or that his brothers had sold him into slavery? Is that really what he meant? That he really had no recollection? No, he remembered. Obviously he remembered. He's saying here, God made me forget the hardship. God made me forget my father's house. It means he remembers it enough to say, I forget. What he's actually communicating is that there is a joy that's so superior to all the sorrow and all the difficulty and all the anguish. It was like a child being born. Just like Jesus says in John chapter 16, that the joy eclipsed all the sorrow. And that's what he said as he held his own little Manasseh and looked into his eyes. God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. The baby boy he held in his arms, that satisfaction of loving and being loved, the token of promises that were fulfilled and the reminder of promises that were yet to come, all wrapped up in a tiny baby named Manasseh. Joseph saw God in the gift of that firstborn son, Manasseh, the God who put the orphan boy, Joseph, into a family. You've got to remember, Joseph hadn't had a family for 13 years. He was all alone. And now, he looks into the eyes of his own and seeing into the eyes of his own son, he sees past his son to God, the God who put him in a family, gave him his own family, and through that surpassing joy made him forget all his hardship, all his father's house. But he had a second son, and this son he named Ephraim. And like Manasseh, when he looked at Ephraim and held that little second-born boy in his arms, he saw past the baby to the God who gave that baby. And he said this, God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. God made Joseph's personal wilderness a lush garden. He made him into a fruitful field. He made him into productive farmland overflowing with bounty for the nations right where he had suffered. His life was turned really into a veritable cornucopia of abundance right in the place where he'd suffered the most severe trials and temptations of his entire life. Literally, Joseph celebrated Thanksgiving there in Egypt as he held his little boys and as he saw God through them, the God who could make a joy so surpassing that all the hardships, all the troubles, all the difficulties of his life were forgotten in light of that joy and the God who could do even more than that, who could make him fruitful right where his life had been a barren wilderness. Now, I want to note for you, we won't look at Psalm 105 now, but Psalm 105 says 
that this experience that Joseph had here in chapter 41 when he rises to power was the fulfillment of the promise. But it was only a partial fulfillment of the promise. And do you remember why this experience, his rise to power, was only a partial fulfillment of the promise, of the dream? Because the fulfillment of the promise, the full fulfillment of the promise, had to do with his brothers and his father and mother bowing down before him, right? But you'll, if you look back to Genesis chapter 37, you would note that there are two parts to the dream, especially the part about the sheaves of grain. It says, first of all, that Joseph's sheaf rose and stood upright. That's what we see in Genesis chapter 41. And that's what Psalm 105 is then referencing. Joseph's chief has now risen and stands upright, but his brothers have not yet bowed down. So this is the partial fulfillment of the promise, but not the complete fulfillment. And Joseph knew that. He remembered the dream. He'd been hanging on to the promise of God for all of these years. And so, see what he does with these boys? He thanks God in the middle. He thanks God in the middle when it hasn't yet come to complete fruition. That makes Thanksgiving a very interesting statement on faith. Think about it. It's one thing to thank God when everything is finished, the story is completely written, you've closed the, the book and it says the end. But that's not where Joseph is in chapter 41 of the book of Genesis. He is in the middle of the story and there in the middle of the story he is giving praise and thanks to God who has made him forget all of his hardship and who has made him fruitful in the land where he has been afflicted. Can we do that? Can we thank God in the middle of our experience when we haven't yet seen the end, when God hasn't yet brought it to pass? It is one of the most practical ways that we can actually boast in God. We can do it today. We can actually boast in God because we can say, Oh God, you have not yet brought me all the way through, but you will. And so I thank you in advance for what you will do. It's just a practical way that Joseph is actually boasting in the God who has brought him this far. Paul says in Philippians chapter 1, 6, boasting in the future and thanking God. I am sure of this, writing to the Philippians, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It wasn't done yet. But Paul said, but it will be. And so I'm sure of this. I'm confident. I'm looking forward in faith. You're looking for something to thank God for? Something in which you can boast in God by thanking him? Can I suggest that you might start by looking for an area of your life in which the promise has not yet been that you're still waiting to see the end. I've got one I can talk about right now. I won't do it. I've got one in my, I'm thinking of one. Are you thinking of one? Can you think of an area of your life where you know that God wants to work, but he hasn't finished the story yet? I suspect you do. That's a good place to start with Thanksgiving. As you gather around your Thanksgiving table, maybe that's your Egypt. Maybe it's the land of your affliction and you say, but I thank God anyway. Because the God who has begun is the God who promises to complete. Yes, he will perform what he has begun. So we thank God particularly because his rewards vastly outweigh our suffering. In Acts chapter five, 
we read of the apostles who were imprisoned and then beaten and then released, and they were charged not to speak anymore in Jesus' name, it says, then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Why? Because God's rewards vastly outweighed their suffering. Get this, guys. They had just been beaten. And we kind of read those things really remotely. It's like, yeah, yeah, okay, they were beaten, and they said this. Or it's like Paul singing in jail. It's like, yeah, yeah, right, got it. Folks, they hurt. They were in pain. The story was not complete. And they knew that to go back and do what they had to do would likely mean more pain. But they said, you know what? The rewards vastly outweigh the suffering. They were suffering, but in their suffering could look to God. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 says, so we do not lose heart. Paul is referencing all of his sufferings, all the things that he experienced, which were so, frankly, devastatingly difficult. In fact, it says um, earlier on in this chapter, we're afflicted in, get this, every way. That's suffering for you. How many ways are you afflicted? In every way. Perplexed but not driven to despair. Persecuted but not forsaken. Struck down but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us. The life in you. Sounds like suffering to me. But listen to what Paul says about this suffering. He says in verse 16 of the same chapter, we do not lose heart, though our outer nature is wasting away. Our inner nature is being renewed day by day. For this, <laughs> I love Paul's words here, for this slight, momentary affliction. Hello, Paul. I think you just lost it. You just told me that you were afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, not driven to despair. You're persecuted, you're not destroyed, you're carrying death in your body all the time. And now you tell me that this is slight and momentary. But why? Read on. This slight momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And get it, it's the same idea that Joseph was tracking with as we look not to the things that are seen, not the visible things, not the things that are touchable and tangible that we can reach out and hold with our hands. We're not just looking at those things, but the things that are not seen. For the things that are seen, the things that you can touch and taste and chew and bite and feel, the things that are seen are transient. But the things that are not seen are God's rewards vastly outweigh our sufferings. And so we give him thanks for that. Remember, that's what Joseph did, is he held little Manasseh in his arms and said, God made me forget. He looked past the baby boy in his arms to the God, the invisible God, who had given him a joy so superior that it made it seem as though all his sufferings were but slight and momentary. He's a living illustration of Paul's demonstration in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 
But we also thank God because he turns bad things to a good end. Remember that he named his second boy Ephraim. Joseph was fruitful in the land of his affliction. Genesis chapter 45, later on in the story of Joseph, we're looking forward to getting there one of these days, says this, so it was not you, speaking to his brothers, it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and a lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. He's saying, look, you thought you were doing this, but that's not, not really the end of the story. God is in charge. There are no second, second um, causes that can trump his perfect plan. God is still in charge. Yes, you did mean it for evil, but God meant it for good to save much people alive. He turns bad things to good ends. We can give him thanks in Joshua chapter 21, verse 45. It says, not one of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. He made them all to come to pass. Could I suggest that one way you can practically boast in God, that you can actually give him thanks as you come to your Thanksgiving table, even if it's a time in the wilderness or land of Egypt for you, is to personalize that verse. You can say it this way. Not one of all the good promises that God has made to me will fail. All will come to pass. Do you believe that? It's a boast because they haven't all come to pass yet, right? But you can experience real thanksgiving as you come to the point of saying that this will yet be true. So we thank God because he turns bad things to a good end. And we thank God because he includes us in his redemptive plan. These boys were Joseph's own flesh and blood, but more than that, they were the children of the promise that God made to J Joseph's great-grandfather Abraham, to his grandfather Isaac, and to his father Jacob. They were the fulfillment of a redemptive plan of God. They were, in one sense, warm, soft, visible evidence, beautiful evidence that God's redemptive plan was still on track, that his purposes never skipped a beat, and that he had not forgotten his name. Joseph could see that when he looked at the boys he held in his arms. They were visible, touchable reminders of God's rewards that outweigh suffering. They were reminders that God always turns bad things to a good end for those who love him, that his redemptive plan is unstoppable, and that we get to have a part in his great work in the world. They were a reminder that our history is really a part of God's enormous tapestry of grace stretching from the beginning of time to the final tolling of the midnight bell at the end of history. But interestingly, God's redemptive plan does not just reduce us to some kind of a cog in a cosmic wheel of fortune that's grinding to a certain definite end. Instead, we're intimately known by this God were loved by him, and his redemptive plan for us actually means that we get the chance to join him in his work. So the very blessed place for us, the very most important place for us if we're in harmony with him is right where he has us right now. I have a hard time with that. I'm always looking for the next place to go. What does God want to do next? Where does he want to take me? Maybe you understand that. It's like, well, surely this can't be the end, and it isn't the end. But thanking God for where he's got me right now. For you to thank God for where he has you right now. 
one of the most critical factors in truly thanking God. Because, let me ask you, we've just said that God has this plan which is unstoppable. If that's true, if there were a better place for you to be, wouldn't he put you there? I, I mean, really, wouldn't he put you there if there was a better place for you? Now, I mean, I understand that we can that we can stonewall the purposes of God's spirit. Yes, absolutely. But if he has you where he has you right now, this is where he wants you to grow. Thank him for it. This is the place. This place. Thank him in the middle of your part of the redemptive plan. He cares more about his kingdom than you do. With that, I want you to look at Psalm 105. Psalm 105 is a whole story of God's redemptive plan. And we find that it lays out, I'm not going to read the whole psalm to you. It would be a great thing if you wanted to read these 45 verses on your own. But I want to just kind of lay out in overview how this psalm runs. And I want you to watch for patterns because while these are my points, they're drawn from the verses. And you'll watch the pattern unfold. I'm going to go through it fast, so buckle your seatbelts. Here it goes. First of all, you'll notice in Psalm 105, it begins with thanks. And then we move into the fact that God remembers his covenant. God protects his people. Watch for the patterns. God summons a famine. Note that, by the way. Who summoned the famine? Yeah, right. Okay. God sends a man. Who sent the man? God. We, uh, God tests Joseph, Psalm 105 asserts. God exalts Joseph. Watch this. Continues. Now God prospers his people in the land of Egypt. God makes enemies. Did you hear that? God makes enemies for his people. That's what Psalm 105 says. God made enemies for his people. He sends a man. You see the pattern starting to develop? He sends a man. He judges his enemies. He prospers his people. Oh, I think we've heard that before. And he remembers his covenant. Are you starting to catch the pattern? Are you starting to hear what's taking place? God's redemptive plan is on track. We hear the, the first man, by the way, is who? Joseph, who's the second man? Moses, right. But you know that the pattern of God's redemptive plan is much bigger than even Psalm 105 because you are a part of his redemptive plan. And if we could play out all the ways in which God's redemptive plan is played to this day, what a glorious pattern we would watch over and over and over again as God remembers his covenant, as he prospers his people, and as he sends it. Maybe you are the man. Maybe I'm the man. Maybe you're the one. Maybe you're the young man or young, young woman that God wants to use in his redemptive plan. These are written, this psalm is focusing on two people that God used in his redemptive plan, Joseph and Moses. But they're not the only two because the plan continues today. So as we come down to the center section of this psalm, in verses 16 through 22, we hear specifically what was taking place in the life of Joseph. It says, when he, God, summoned a famine on the land and broke all the supply of bread, he sent a man ahead of them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. It would have been nice if God could find a different way to get him there, but he didn't. He sent him as a slave. His feet were hurt with fetters. His neck was put in a collar of iron until what he had said came to pass. Until what? Who had said? God had said. God gave the dream. Until what God had said came to pass, 
the word of the Lord tested him. The king sent and released him. The ruler of the people set him free. He made him lord of his house, ruler of all his possessions, to bind his princes at his pleasure and to teach his elders wisdom. There is so much there that we could talk about. But I want to just point out a few important details from this small section of the life of Joseph from Psalm 105. First of all, I want you to note, as you look back through the pattern of the two pages that we've just looked at here on the screen, it's all about God. Was it really a story about Joseph? No. It was Joseph's story, but it was Joseph's story woven into the great story of God. This is God's redemptive plan, and he deigns to use his servant Joseph, and he sends him to Egypt in a pretty hard way, and while he's there, he experiences a bunch of difficult things. Probably going to be the way it is for us. By the way, if you track Moses' story later in the psalm, was it easy going for Moses? Not so much. It was very difficult. In fact, in the book of Hebrews chapter 11, we find that Moses is having to stand up to Pharaoh face to face, and not in a nice conversation like Joseph had with him, but in a face-to-face confrontation with the most powerful ruler in the world. But you know what he did? The same thing Joseph did. He looked past Pharaoh to God who stood on the other side. In fact, it says specifically, to quote Hebrews chapter 11, it says he endured the wrath of the king. How? As seeing him who is invisible. That's how he endured. So this, first of all, it's a story all about God. But secondly, God sends and uses men, but he never relinquishes his position as the only Savior. He's the only Savior. Joseph, remember, in chapter 41, verse 16, says, it is not in me. Joseph didn't become the Savior. Can I suggest that that's a huge relief? You do not have to save this generation. I was chewing on this on my way on a business trip this week in the Seattle area and thinking about it. It's like, you know what? I don't have to be the Savior. I mean, it's pretty obvious, right? I should have thought of this a long time ago, but, it, but it's really a relief because I'm not the one who is going to fix all the problems, and neither are you. But we can be instruments in God's hand to work together with him, and that's what Joseph was. Joseph worked together with God. He's kept in harmony with God, and as a result, he was used for God's purposes. And then I think this is just important to remember as we look at a life like Joseph's, God's word of promise that sustained Joseph was the very same word that tried him. Just think about that for a minute. Look at what it says here in verse 19. Until what he, God, had said came to pass, the word of the Lord tested him. If God didn't have a purpose in mind for Joseph, He wouldn't have administered the same test, but he had a purpose. So are you going through a difficulty or a trial? Is it just evidence that God has a purpose for you that's bigger than what you thought? Is it possible that your trial is an indicator of what God actually wants to do for you? And he's testing you. It was through this test that God prepared Joseph to withstand the temptations of power and corruption. It was through this trial of these 13 years in Egypt that he educated Joseph in the immersion method of the foreign way of life and the foreign tongue in a foreign land. It was in this trial of 13 years that he built Joseph's confidence in the invisible God and prepared him for the work he had yet to come. C.H. Spurgeon says, looking at these verses in Psalm 105, and I quote from him, God leads us into circumstances in which we are tempted to doubt his promises. I think Joseph was there. I think so. That by temptation, 
God may discipline faith into power. God leads us into circumstances in which we are tempted to doubt his promises, that by temptation he may discipline faith into power. The trial by the word of the Lord really became the means by which the word of the Lord was fulfilled in the life of Joseph. Redemption lies on the other side of the trial. To show it to you in a flash, God has a plan. He fulfills his promises. God's plan has a pattern. He aligns people with his plan through trials. God's pattern involves a man. He chooses people to work together with him. God uses his man to deliver his people. He triumphs against impossible odds through weak people like us. And God's people give thanks. That's the sum of Psalm 105. It begins saying, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples, and it concludes, Praise the Lord. I don't know what kind of an Egypt you may be in this year as you gather at your Thanksgiving table. But maybe you are in some place that is, at least in some way, undesirable, a circumstance you wish you didn't have in your life. It's the place to be at. It's a matter of believing that God really is who he said he is. And he gives you the chance in this difficult circumstance that you experience right now to be a part of his redemptive plan. So how do we give thanks this year? I want to tell you a very short story as we conclude this morning about something as I look back and see in my recent history that I can give thanks for. This is a picture of a bridge on the Nooksack River up over the North Fork of the Nooksack River. We went up there, it was either late July or early August, and um, Jim and Jeb had found out that that South Fork of the river is actually a very warm part. I didn't know that there was such a part of the, of the, of the river. I think of it down here in Ferndale at Hovander Park, and I've gone swimming there, and I know what it's like. It's kind of murky, and it's fast, and you can swim in it if you're brave, and people sometimes drown in it, and, you know, I mean, it's, it's an interesting piece of river, and I like messing around in it, but I didn't know that there was something that felt warm and almost tropical, for Northwest standards, in, uh, in the South Fork. So we went up there, and we hung out with, with uh, Jim and Jeb and some of the other Hyblees and our kids, and we played in the South Fork of the River and went up, and we looked at fish, and it was amazing. It was a beautiful time. It was a wonderful, warm day. And we came back down, and we were preparing to leave, and I was standing on the shore. I had my keys in my hand because I was just about ready to be done and go on. And um, Jim had come back down the river, the girls had wanted to go further, and he said, I think we ought to just go back at this point in time. And he, for whatever reason, I'm not sure even Jim knows exactly why, he plunked his plastic chair down in the far side of the river and watched two boys, Jeb and Benjamin, who were playing down at the confluence of these two forks of the river. Now, we knew that there was, the North Fork is a radically different kind of a river. If you've been up there, you know that. It is turbulent and glacial and fast. And so we were a little concerned about that, but I wasn't paying too much attention because I was getting ready to go. And, but Jim sat and watched as Jeb and Benjamin played around right near that convergence zone between the two forks. 
and they'd been swimming a long time, and they were looking for fish, and uh, they were finding them. There were fish down there. They weren't hooking fish. They were just watching fish. And um, so uh, nothing, nothing much took place until all of a sudden Benjamin stepped out uh, across a place where somehow the rush of the river had cut away the stream bed underneath. Yeah. And he found out he was tireder than he thought he was. And it was colder than it had just been. Jeb said to him, are you okay? And Benjamin gasped back, no. Jeb reached out and tried to take him by the hand. He was that close. That's where you could feel the rip. He was just the other side of that rip, and he could reach out and hold Benjamin's hand, but he couldn't pull him back. The river was too strong for his boots. I don't know what Jeb yelled. He must have yelled something that his dad heard sitting in that plastic chair. And all I knew is that I heard a yell, and I saw Jim plowing down the river to my son. It was at that moment that it dawned on me what was taking place. And I jettisoned my keys and my phone, which was in my hand, as I ran down the rocky beach to prepare to dive into the river. What was taking place in the river, I really didn't know. And I kind of went into a tunnel at that point, and I really didn't, didn't, um, I didn't see anything else. And frankly, to my shame, I really didn't even think of God. I just thought about my son and getting there. Jim got there first, obviously. I don't know how long he was there, but as he began to wrestle with Benjamin to try and pull him out, Benjamin was in that drowning swimmer mode. And so he was fighting to stay up, but as a result, he was also fighting Jim. And Jim came to realize, I don't think I can save him. Now, mind you, we're feet away from the calmer water. I didn't know that, so I just dove in. And I swam right out into the turbulence. And I got there and grabbed my son. And at the moment that I grabbed him, he threw his arm around my neck, caught me by the windpipe, quit struggling. That was just God because he had just been in the drowning swimmer mode. And so then I began to swim. Only I didn't know where to swim. And I was all wrapped up. And so thankfully at that moment, God brought Jim clarity of mind to say, swim right. Swim right. I, what is right anyway? I'm out in the middle of a river. I didn't know what he was talking about. And the best thing I could think of was to swim back to the beach because I want to go home. I don't want to get my son out of here, but it was the wrong way because I was going to try to swim back with someone hanging around my neck against the current. It wouldn't have worked. We'd have both drowned. Jim said, swim right. And then he began to go. So I didn't know. I just followed him. And we swam with the current the other side. But as we swam, <laughs> I got to the point with pressure on my windpipe and my own tiredness that I actually gasped out 
I'm not going to make it. And then my feet touched the bottom. We don't have a whole lot of dramatic experiences like that in our lives, but we have some. And they don't have to be that dramatic to remember back the things that God has done that only God can do. Ways in which he's protected us, ways in which he's provided for us, ways in which he's led us, things in which we have not yet seen the end of the story. When you're still in the middle of the river, are you in the middle of a river? The torrent is rushing around you, cold and fierce. God is with you in the river. And you can thank him that he will not but it's an act of faith to do it. It's an act of faith to say, oh God, here in the middle of my river, here in my personal Egypt, here in the place that I don't want to be, far from family and friends, here in the place where nobody understands me, here in the place where I just want to do something else, here in this place, I give you thanks, oh God, I call upon your name, and I will make known your deeds. thanks this year as you gather and eat abundantly. We're feasting foreigners, really. We're from another land. And yet God has called us to a feast, a feast of thanksgiving by faith, by which we partake of his goodness every day, even when we can't see it. So let's thank him this morning. We give you thanks, oh God, for your astonishing ways, which we haven't yet fully seen. 